I'll continue our time of worship as the deacons come to collect the Lord's And Now please take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Today in our studies we have reached the transfiguration. You can find that in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28, and we'll read together today through verse 36. It's on page 867 of our church Bibles. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28, and as we read, you'll remember uh, that we went from last week, from the first prophecy of Christ that he is about to die, from the, the valley of that experience and that promise to the heights of glory. And uh, my hope is that as we read together today, you will understand that that juxtaposition between those two is sudden and intentional, and that Christ puts uh, this into the mind of his people through his Holy Spirit to record these events for us as they happened uh, so that we would see them together and understand the glory of who he is, even though he was the one who came to give his life. So we're reading together today the Transfiguration, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. And before we read God's word together, please join me uh, in seeking his blessing upon our reading. Let's pray. O righteous Lord of glory, God of grace and mercy, you who call lost sinners to yourselves and redeem them through the power and the work of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that you would make our eyes open as the eyes of these men were opened to see your glory. That by your Spirit you would cause us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and seeing and beholding his glory, you would transform us from one degree of glory to another as you sanctify us and make us more like him. O oh Lord, this is all of your work, and we pray that you would do it. Pray that you would make us more and more your people who are like Christ. Lord, do this for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, uh, to be honest, uh, some sermons are harder to get started than others. With apologies to uh, visitors today, the rest of you by this point know how this ought to go. Uh, this is the introduction, uh, and in my introductions, I like to start with 
some story or, or some connection point so that we can think and begin to, to apply our lives to the Word of God. It always works best, at least I think it works best, if, if there is uh, some common experience that I can tap into so that within a minute or two you're all wondering if maybe the pastor is a mind reader. The, the goal in the introduction is to get you to the point where you're hearing something and saying, oh, I, I know exactly what that's like. I've been there. I've, I've felt that. I've had that experience because it is at that magical moment when I get you there that we take that pregnant pause and then I say, and this week's text is about exactly that experience. But what do we do? How do we, how do we start a passage it's about an experience that none of us have ever had. We have absolutely no reference point, personally speaking, for what uh, the apostles are experiencing here. Jesus took three disciples up onto the mountain to accompany him in one of his overnight prayer marathons. And as the hours wear on, his glory shines through his humanity, the glory of his godhood. And great prophets of the past appear and the cloud of God descends and the apostles shake with fear. And what analogy could we possibly give to say, oh, you know that experience you've had. How silly it would be to try and reduce it to remember that time that you you met that celebrity and you were starstruck and yet they gave you their autograph and how silly it would be. What, What analogy, what common experience could we possibly have We've never experienced anything like this. These men saw a glimpse of the glory of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is about. It's about the glory of Jesus. It is about the unfiltered, awe-inducing, knee-shaking glory of Jesus. And it has been passed down to us by those who were there and those who saw it. Peter was there. And so he tells us in the beginning of his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, he says, When Christ received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What an amazing thing that we have never experienced. John was there too, and so John begins his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. You've never experienced this. But they have. They have. So that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, you can believe in what you have not yet seen. So that by faith you may have some experience of seeing and rejoicing in the glory of God that is to be found in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul tells us. They are telling us about an experience that we've never had in order to draw us into that experience so that we too would see something of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is all about. It's about seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. As we open it, there there are several aspects, three aspects of Jesus' glory, I think, that grab our attention. The first is the glory of Jesus' being. 
the glory of his being. And I want to say that, that we find it in this particular verse in this passage, but really we find it all throughout this passage from the beginning to the end, from the way Christ shows up to what the Father says about him. It's really all about who Jesus is and the glory of his being. It is, again, Luke pushing this agenda that he's been pushing on us for the last six chapters or so, trying to get us to interact with this question of who Jesus really is. It's like when you watch one of those nature documentaries from, uh, from BBC. I love those. Anytime there's a family uh, movie night and dad gets to pick, I always pick some iteration of Blue Planet or Planet Earth or, or whatever other planet they've got showing uh, on Netflix at the particular time. And I love uh, to learn about the migratory patterns of wildebeest, and I love to see these uh, immense, incredible camera shots of mountains that I will never in my life even think of climbing, but we know how those things go. It's a wonderful show, but you know that at least once in every episode, David Attenborough is going to get a little preachy. And you know that he's got this agenda, and he's going to tell you at some point how dangerously close our planet is to an ecological apocalypse and how we need to protect the animals that natural selection has placed in our care. I have nothing against conservation. I take issue on his, uh, his ideas of how things came to be, but we ought to be good stewards of what the Lord has created, and so that's okay, but we understand how it is. You can't simply sit back and watch planet Earth just to enjoy the lemurs because there is this agenda that is always put before you, and for six chapters, Luke has been putting his agenda before you. You can't just sit back and say, wow, Jesus is wonderful. That's amazing. Did you see that and walk away as though he's not trying to get you to get to some position on who he is? That's been Luke's agenda over and over again. It's his all-consuming passion. He wants us to answer the question of Jesus' identity. So it's come up over and over again. Isn't this Joseph's son, they said, back in Nazareth? What is this word that he speaks with authority and the demons go out? Who is this who forgives sins? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this about whom I've heard such things? Even John the Baptist asked the questions, are you the one who was to come or should we wait for another? It's been everywhere. You can't get away from it. Luke is pressing us and here one last time, this by the way, is the last time in Luke's gospel this question will be asked and answered in just this way. Wanting us to see who exactly Jesus is. Luke is getting us to answer that question that Jesus asks of Peter, who do you say that I am? And it ends with this statement of the Lord. Just as at his baptism, Jesus began his, his ministry with the Lord Father uh, speaking from heaven and, and saying, this is my son. So now in this turning point in his ministry, the father speaks again and he tells us, the Lord himself interprets who we ought to think Jesus is. This is his son. It's about his identity. But I want you to notice that in this passage, uh, this question is answered in a way different than it's answered anywhere else in the rest of what we've been seeing except perhaps at the baptism, because in all those other instances, people were forced to ask the question of who Jesus was because of something outside of Jesus. 
It was identity by inference. They would, they would look at something that he did. Maybe they would look at something that he said. They would look at his power going forth through his apostles and, and what it said about them. And it was always beginning with something other than Jesus and being forced to turn and consider who Jesus was. The apostles saw the waves and the wind and they looked at those and they said, we need to consider Jesus. John's followers saw the lame uh, walking and the dead raised and the, the blind received their sight and they said, we've got to consider Jesus. Herod saw his apostles going forth and he said, who is this Jesus? But here, what do they see? What do they start with? They start with Jesus. This is not identity by inference. This is looking directly at who Jesus is. This is the glory of his being. This is what Luke is showing us tells us in verse 29 that as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzlingly white. And then verse 32, when the disciples became fully awake, they saw his glory. There is no miraculous middleman in this passage. Jesus is the miracle. And they're looking at the glory of his being. They saw him. Now what exactly did they see? What was the glory that was revealed to these men? Well, some commentators uh, speak of this perhaps in a sense of a, a glimpse backwards to see a former glory. We sing every year at Christmas, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That's, that's the idea behind uh, Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. He prays to the Father. Uh, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. There is in this strange time and space continuum metaphysical way of thinking of things that as Jesus came into the world, uh, his glory, his visible glory at least, was in some sense veiled. That, that in, in, uh, in this strange sense that it was in time eternal for, for the past. He was no less intrinsically glory. He was no less truly divine and yet his glory was hidden. And so we might be able to say that maybe they were looking back as an item in the rear view is, is maybe closer than it appears. They're, they're looking back and seeing something of, of Jesus' glory that once was. Other commentators remind us that actually this is the glory of what is about to be. Verse 27, just before this, Jesus told his disciples that some were standing there who would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, it's the king. And it's wherever he reigns. And yes, the kingdom came in power at the day of Pentecost. Yes, uh, the kingdom will come in fullness when Christ returns at the last day. But maybe here, maybe there's, maybe there's a foretaste, an appetizer of what is yet for these disciples yet to come. Maybe it was like that uh, vision that John received on the island of Patmos. Revelation chapter 1, he says, The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. What did John see? He saw the, the glory of the risen and ascended Lord. He saw the glory of Christ who rules and reigns over his church by the sword of his mouth. He saw Christ who is coming back for his people. 
And perhaps that's what men, these men saw as well. And maybe they saw something that, that had been. Maybe they saw something that was still yet to come. But I think we also need to understand that they were seeing the glory of what actually was at that moment and yet was hidden from them. This is a present glory as well. It was something like that moment in 2 Kings chapter 6. Let me remember the time that the Syrians were coming because they wanted to capture Elisha. And Elisha was uh, in the city of Dothan. And so the Syrians came down and surrounded the city. And it tells us there in 2 Kings that in the morning, uh, Elisha's servant went out and he saw the city was surrounded by an army of, of horses and chariots. It was an unstoppable force, and he came back and he cried out, Alas, my master, what shall we do? 2 Kings 6, 17, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They were always there, weren't they? It was the unseen, invisible, spiritual realm, and, and the Lord had already sent His armies ahead of the Syrians uh, to, to care and to protect for His chosen prophet. But the young man didn't see it. He didn't understand, and he needed to have his eyes open to see that everything was okay, that the Lord was still in control. And so Elisha prayed, Oh Lord, open his eyes. Maybe that's what's happening here for these men. It's no coincidence. That this happens just about a week after Jesus has given this first prophecy that he will be rejected and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised. It is no coincidence that just days before Jesus told his disciples for the first time that if any of you want to come and follow me, you've got to be ready to die as I'm ready to die. You've got to take up your cross in order to follow me. You've got to grow in this uh, this, uh, this self-giving, this self-sacrifice, take up your cross. Give up your desires for yourselves and your security. And for about a week, I think, if you were those disciples, you would have been quoting Scripture. Alas, my master, what, what are we to do? And so Jesus gives them the answer. His answer was to take them, at least three of them, up onto the mountain and to have their eyes opened. Not just showing them the glory that had been, not just showing them the glory that was to come. Jesus was showing them the glory that already was, who he really was. That's what they needed. They needed to see the glory of his being. They needed to know that he is the radiance. Notice how often glory in the scriptures is spoken of as, as a shining of the sun. And in Hebrews it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. As God's glory shines into the world, it shines in Christ and through Christ. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. They needed to know that. They needed to know that rejection and death and the cross of Calvary could not undo what Jesus had come to do. And so He showed them. He showed them the glory of who He is. And maybe in the midst of your suffering. Maybe as you see your own sin, maybe in the depth of your anxiety about your future as a Christian, you need spiritual eyes to see the glory of who Jesus is as well. And so he shows them the glory of his being. Secondly, we find here the glory of Jesus going. There's a glory in his being. There's, 
There's a glory in his going. Verse 32 tells us not only did the disciples see Jesus in his glory, but they saw two men with him, Moses and Elijah, the great lawgiver, the quintessential uh, ministering prophet of the Old Testament. They saw him there. They were there. They were having a conversation. And of all the, all the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell us that these men were there. And they all tell us that they were speaking. But only Luke tells us what they were talking about. What were they talking about? says they spoke with him about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. As we, we read this passage, let, let's be humble a little bit. Let, let's acknowledge, if, if we're uh, being honest, that there are many things in this very strange passage that we do not understand. There are probably more things that we don't understand than things that we do understand. We don't know uh, if this is the first time that Jesus ever spoke with other Old Testament prophets about what he was about to do. We don't, we don't know if, if these men were physically present or if they were a vision uh, like the Old Testament prophets sometimes experience. We don't know uh, how these three apostles recognized Moses and Elijah whom they had never seen. But, but somehow it happens Nevertheless, here they were, and, and they spoke with the Lord. We know that, and we know that Jesus took these three men up on this mountain on this night to overhear this conversation so that they would see the glory of what he was about to do, the glory of his going, his departure. And folks, if you want to understand who Jesus is, those are the two sides of what you need to know about him. You need to know who he is in his being, and you need to know who he is in his doing, and his going. Suppose you were to say that you, you were a great lover of the, the artist Michelangelo. You knew everything about him. You knew uh, the socio-political status of Florence in the 16th century. You knew uh, his influences. You knew the, the stories that circulated around his dinner table. You knew as he grew into his old age the comfort that he desired uh, and the, the memories that he missed. But you say, I've never seen the, Michael, the, uh, the David. I've never gazed upon the Sistine Chapel. Oh no, I, I know Michelangelo, but I know nothing of his life's work. I know nothing of his art. How well could you know Michelangelo? Well, so it is with Christ. We can know everything there is to know about him. We can know about his person. We can know how he came. We can know where he lived and what he said and what he did. But if we don't know anything about his life's accomplishment, about the reason that he came into the world, we don't know anything about him at all. And so theologians speak of knowing uh, the difference between the person and the work of Jesus Christ who he is and what he did. And, and to really know him, we've got to see them both together. We've got to see the glory of Jesus being and we have to know the glory of Jesus going because that is what Jesus came to do. Isn't it strange that whole, the whole purpose for Jesus coming into the world was so that he would go out of the world? So the going out of the world, he would, he would make a way that we could go with him where he is. And so Luke tells us, Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish. Now notice that footnote if you've got the ESV. It wasn't really a departure at all. Luke uses a very rare word in the New Testament to say that they were speaking about Jesus' exodus. Now if he just wants to speak about Jesus' death, that's a strange way to talk about it. Far better to understand that Luke is doing this intentionally. He's putting this before us so that we would not only understand uh, that Jesus is about to die and be taken away, but that this has a significance for all of God's people. 
I mean, here he is standing with Moses, right? The, the first covenant mediator who took God's people out of the fiery furnace, out of the land of affliction, out of Egypt and into the promised land. He's standing here with the one who was used by God to, to bring about the first exodus, and they're speaking of an exodus. Here he is standing with Elijah and speaking to him, and Elijah was the one that after the people had exited and they got into the promised land and they began to grow fat and happy and idolatrous, Elijah was the one who was sent to call them back to the Lord who had delivered them to himself in the first place. Here he is standing with Moses who promised the people that a day was coming, Deuteronomy chapter 18, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among your brothers, and to him you shall listen. A new prophet, a new shepherd of God's people. Here he stands with Elijah, the prophet who was promised to be sent all over again before the coming of the Lord. Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prepared for what? Prepared for an exodus. Just as the people in the Old Testament and in, in Egypt were told to gather up your things and gather your kneading bowls and make your flight quick and, and eat your bread and, and your Passover lamb with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, be prepared. So Elijah was sent. And so here is this new exodus that's happening. And they're speaking with Jesus about it. That's his departure. That's the glory of his going. It's not an exodus out of a nation of of slave drivers as it was before. It's an exodus out of the bondage of sin that grips every human heart. It is an exodus out of the fiery furnace of condemnation that we deserve because of the deeds of our flesh. Jesus came to bring his people out of bondage. He came to make them a people who were set apart and beloved by God and drawn to himself. Think about it. At the first exodus, the people came out of Egypt under the sound of wailing Egyptians, the death of the firstborn. They came out under houses that were splattered with the blood of the Passover lamb. And now here is Jesus, who was the firstborn son, and he himself is about to become the Passover lamb. He was a sacrifice and he was a substitute on the same cross. And as Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah about the Exodus, the three of them shone with the glory of heaven. A strange time and conversation to be having in order to shine with the glory of heaven, isn't it? It would almost seem like an oxymoron, something that you, you don't expect. It's when we, when we sing some of those old hymns and we sing it to the wrong tune and you know that there's something wrong and it should be a dirge but it sounds too happy or it should be too happy and it, it sounds like, like the opposite or whatever it is and, uh, and there's something, there's a dissonance here. And that dissonance is supposed to be a challenge to the apostles. Because soon they're going to see their master led away to chains and whips and blood and nails. Soon they're going to see him bound and mocked and beaten and dead and buried. And when it happened, they must not think of it as a failure. They need to remember the glory of it all. I need to remember the fulfillment of the exodus for God's people. It was the reason that he had come. Not to have his life taken from him, but to lay it down of his own accord, to lay down his life so that he might take it up. It was the most powerful, it was the most glorious thing that he would ever do. 
And so this was meant to be an encouragement and a challenge to them. And that's why Peter's response was so wrong. Luke even tells us that it was a mistake. <clears throat> Excuse me. That Luke didn't know what to say. He didn't, he didn't know how to respond. He opened his mouth, and here we go again, Peter. He's, he's saying the very first thing that crops up in his mind. That's what, one of the things that we love about Peter. Verse 33, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Now, what could be so bad about that? Except for the fact that he seems to have missed the entire point. He missed the point of the glory of Jesus being. He wants to treat Jesus like these two other men. Three little shrines. Maybe each the same size. One for you, one for him, one for him. Everybody gets a shrine. And we can all come together and we can remember this time that, uh, that uh, two heavenly visitors came down and, and they were all of one accord. Isn't that nice? He also missed the glory of Jesus going. It's again only in Luke that we get the detail that makes sense of all of this, Luke tells us that Peter said these things, quote, as the men were parting from him. Do you see that? As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus. The vision's over, Peter. Soon the visitors are going to be gone. Soon you're going to be left. Soon it's going to be back to business as normal. You're going to head down the mountain back to where Failure and opposition and everyday boredom makes it easy to forget the glorious things that you've just seen and witnessed. You're about to go back down to the place where even if you told anybody, they wouldn't believe what you said you saw in the first place. And he wants to hold on to it. Wait just a minute. Let me get some supplies. We'll set up camp. We'll stay here. We don't have to go back down there. We don't have to go on the road to Jerusalem. We will stay here with our tents and our shanties and our tiny little shacks, and we'll make the kingdom of God come to us. And it's a good thing, actually, Jesus, that I'm here for you. Let me do something special for you. And Jesus didn't come to have something special done for him. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. He came down to give his life as a ransom for many, and that was the glory of his going. That's what the disciples saw. They saw the glory of Jesus being and the glory of his going. And there's another aspect here that these men encountered on the mountain. It happened as the cloud descended, as, as their knees shook, as the voice of God spoke, they learned of the glory of Jesus leading. The glory of Jesus leading. Verse 35 tells us that uh, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. It was confirmation that this, that this group of men needed. But actually, back in Deuteronomy, when Moses was speaking about a new prophet, he was speaking about Jesus Christ. He's the one to whom we must listen. He's the one who was sent to be a shepherd of God's people, to bring them out of slavery and of sin and, and into the freedom of faith. This was, this was an encouragement. This was also the most gracious rebuke that Peter possibly could have received for all of his missteps. We love Peter in the Gospels because he's just like us. Sometimes he's impetuous. Sometimes he's sleeping. And he's always waffling between those two. It seems like Peter is always saying the wrong thing for the right reason. 
He's always opening his mouth at the wrong time, and we get this sense that he's, he's got such a beautiful heart, and he could be so useful and so helpful to the kingdom of God if he would just get out of his own way and let Jesus call the shots for once, and that's exactly what God is telling Peter to do, what he's calling you to do. This message wasn't just for them, it's for us as well, that we are to listen to Jesus, we are to follow where he leads. Jesus uh, the Lord is calling us to stop looking at the world through our own understanding. Stop trying to make Jesus uh, fit into our own expectation of what he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. He's calling us to give up trying to find our own way of living and pursuing a righteousness that, that makes us happy and self-assured and, and makes us feel good about ourselves. That's what it means, actually, to to listen in the biblical sense of the word. It means to, to give over everything that we're holding on to and, and to listen unto obedience. To really hear what, uh, what those who are wiser than us, what the Lord has to say to us. We spend our summer listening to God's wisdom in Proverbs. How often do we find, and hear something that sounded like Proverbs 13.1, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. What's the scoffer's problem? They won't listen. They won't take direction. They will not be led by wisdom into obedience. But the one who listens to Jesus is the one who believes what he has to say and the one who follows where he leads. This is the glory of his, of his leading, of taking us from what we think we understand about him and how we think we're supposed to follow him and drawing us near and saying, no, 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 this is what life in Christ is all about. And God says, listen to my son. Let him lead you into obedience. Now, we began today speaking of the fact that on the mountain, Jesus uh, showed Peter and James and John something that we have never experienced. We began thinking about the difference between what they saw of Jesus and what we see of Jesus, but I think that's not entirely true. It's true that we've never seen him face to face. We've never yet seen him in his glory as he is. We, we've never been enveloped by the cloud of God's presence and heard his voice speaking to us. But if you've come to know Christ, you have experienced the same difficulty that every Christian before you has faced with this call to listen to Jesus, to let him lead you. It's the difficulty of the weakness of your flesh that is slow to believe all that the prophets and all the law spoke about him. Slower still to obey what he calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. I think from time to time we like to comfort ourselves and we like to say, you know, if I had been there, if I'd been with Peter on that mountain, if I had seen what they had seen, obedience would be easy. That's what I need. I needed a, a spiritual experience like they had. If only I could see something more than I can see now, then it would be easy to follow Jesus in this life. Peter is an example sufficient to disprove that theory, isn't he? He was there. He heard this voice, and yet he still managed to stick his proverbial foot in his mouth over and over again and to say the wrong things and to try to take Jesus in a direction that Jesus was not going. He saw all the glory of Jesus. He, he saw Moses and Elijah standing there speaking to him. He was amazed and he was in awe of what he saw. And then they came down the mountain and they went to Jerusalem where he promptly disavowed ever knowing, that, uh, that he would, ever knowing Jesus. 
I don't know him. I've never been with him. I'm not a follower of that man, he said. You see, Peter is so much like us. I think we need to get the sense that if our faith were built upon just a few moments of of spiritual experience, we'd be sunk. It's not a, a vision. It's not a heavenly vision of visitors that we need to see to make us obedient to Christ, but there's something that can. There's something that is, that is more enduring in the life of God's people than just a passing glimpse of His glory. The, the fuller picture of, of Peter and his failure is that after Jesus ascended into heaven, Jesus, uh, Peter became a preacher. Here, he, he said nothing, along with the others, he sa- said nothing of what he had seen, but later he went out and he told everybody he could of those that they had not yet seen. And he says, no, I, I've seen him on the mountain, I've seen him on the cross, and I've seen his empty tomb. Let me tell you about him. And as he spoke, the Lord used that speaking. He used that witness to bring faith in the lives of people who had never met Jesus and to draw them to him and to make them obedient from the heart, to change their, their attitude toward Christ, to give them new desires after him. And I think it was baffling to Peter. In his first letter, you can almost hear the amazement in his words. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Can you imagine? You've not experienced this. You've never seen him face to face, yet you love him, don't you? Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, Jesus invites us into this experience. We've never seen him face to face, but by his spirit working in his people, he he calls us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Paul says that in, in doing that, he transforms us from one degree of glory to another. It's a foretaste, isn't it? Not of what was, but but certainly of what will be. That when we see him, we shall we'll see him as he is because we will be like him. What did the apostles see on that mountain? They saw Christ transfigured, and they saw a foretaste of the glory that we will take part in. Not not that we'll become Jesus, not that we will be swallowed up in his deity as some Christians believe, but we will will be made like him, we will be purified, we will be holy, we will be drawn out of, of the slavery of sin forever, that it will be nothing but a fading memory for all of eternity. We'll see him, we'll bask in his glory face to face forever. So, dear brothers and sisters, we've never seen Jesus, not like this. But if you believe that the Christ of the mountain is the chosen Son of God, then listen to Him. Listen and obey and wait to see what the Lord will reveal to those who love Him. Please join me in prayer. O Lord our God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see Christ. 